Okay, so we're going to uh, bring this alive today. We're going to imagine that we are there and Paul is speaking this morning. Um, so we're going to rephrase the first bit. Men and women of Bourneville. Come on, Paul, a bit sexist, mate. Um, men and women of Bourneville. I perceive that in every way you are very religious. We attend church faithfully. Well, most of the time. We, we help out in church. We facilitate things, although I still think there's space in the set-up team. Set-down team, is that right? D-Rig today. D-Rig today and generally. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, great. So we do that. Uh, we go to our small groups and community groups and other little groups that help us facilitate talking to each other and sharing with each other and learning how to talk to our neighbours, which were things that we did easily before we became Christians and then pretended that everything was okay. We have the right language. You know, if someone is feeling overwhelmed, we know what they need. They need a hedge of protection, don't they, around them. We pray that. We go, you need a hedge of protection around you. Um, If someone's going on a journey, the only thing you need on a journey is traveling mercies. That's what has to be prayed. You can't go anywhere without traveling mercies. If we think someone is getting closer to God, we use phrases like, they are ripe for harvest. How weird is that? It's strange, isn't it, when you think about it? We've got all this lingo. I remember we went to a church a while ago where me and, me and Abby were church dating, looking which church was suitable for us. And, um, and I won't mention the name of the church. Um, and this woman came up to us, and she gave us that look, that you're a visitor look, you're new here look. Kind of she paused and stared at us, and she approached us. And we were like, all right, okay, great, great, this is good. So she goes, are you new? And we're like, yes, we're new. And she goes, oh, fresh meat. So I go, oh, right, okay, great, welcome, good. I'm glad that we, you know, we're already Christians, because otherwise we would have ran, well, we did run a mile anyway, but it's a great church, pastor's great, I know. Um, if we want someone to feel God's presence, we pray God set them on fire. Can you imagine that out of context? Get arrested, wouldn't you? We know the lingo, we know how to do it, we've got the right words, and we've got the right church actions and expressions, we've all got the church smile. You know, we've been arguing in the car, the kids are doing our head in, it's been a terrible morning, but we walk in the door, oh, I'm blessed, blessed, how are you, blessed, great, good, and we've got the church smile, it goes on, because really we don't want anyone to know what's going on in our life, do we, you know, we, this is the time to celebrate, pretend, do it all, and we do that, if someone is sharing something, we have our prayerful, profound face, and, and when we're doing that look, it, it looks as if we're, we're exploring every single chapter of God's word to give them something profound. And we know how to do that, don't we? We've got the look as well. We know when to stand up, sit down. We know when to shake it all around. And we know after church how to evaluate everything we liked and didn't like and this and that. And we finish our time. We're dedicated. Paul sees that there are people who are dedicated to a religious experience, have a pattern of life that revolves around it, are part of their smaller groups, wider community. They know the right things to say, the right looks to give, the right way of being. There are people and a culture that know how to do religion well. They have all the bases covered. But I also found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And the reason there was this altar to the unknown God is that there was a legend in Athens way, way, way before Paul's time that there was a plague throughout the land and they'd sacrificed to all the gods that they knew. And they thought, you know what? This isn't working. Maybe there's a God we don't know yet. So let's build an altar to a God we don't know and sacrifice. And they did. And it worked. And so there was this altar that still stays there. It's like this unknown God that did something once in their life. They still carried on worshipping all the other gods, but they left this reminder of a God that worked once. And I wonder whether 
For many of us, this might reflect our direct communication and relationship with the living God. That we know how to do the right things, we know how to appear, we know how to act, and we do so sincerely, methodically, with passion, but yet find ourselves like the people in Athens living with a reminder of a God that we once experienced in power, but yet remains so unknown to us. And because of that, as much as we serve and give, uh, it never gets us closer. It never moves us forward. It never compels us to be single-minded. It never stops us worshipping a multitude of gods. It never stops us in our tracks. Because religious service in itself allows us to know about the altar of God and even serve at it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we are going to get to know God. And when we don't know who God, this God is we serve, we allow our worship to go everywhere else and our devotion to be given to other things and people, as we saw in Athens. You see, if we really knew God, we'd never cease to worship him. And the question for humanity, as, as, as Tim referred to last week, is not whether we worship, but what we worship. We are worshipers. As human beings, we have this ability to worship. And if we don't want to direct that towards God... We have to direct it somewhere else. It's not that we choose to. It's not, you're not a worshipper because you go to church or a temple or a mosque. or You're a worshipper because you're human. We are created to have this capacity to encounter God and to express that back to him and express it to everyone else around. And this worship is a precious gift. It's powerful. It directs our entire life. It's overwhelming. It leads our decisions, it will shape our relationships, it will create our paths, and ultimately will decide our eternal destiny. It's a pretty weighty gift that God has bestowed on us, and one that when directed towards God is the most satisfying and life-giving experience you can have. And when we do not have our worship directed at God, we will constantly be looking for other things to direct it to. So as humans, we're constantly on this search for things to worship. You've got the people who Moses were leading. God had delivered them miraculously from Egypt. He was feeding them every day with food from the sky and water that appeared in the desert. There was miracle after miracle. They were at the bottom of a mountain where there was earthquakes and fire and wind and this awesome picture of God. And while Moses was up the, t- up the mountain, they went, ooh, that's a nice golden calf. And they took their worship and they went, ooh, that's nice. They took their worship from God. When God had given the Israelites all the other cities, but told them not to plunder just one of them, don't take the items from this one place, they went, ooh, those things look shiny. And their worship went there. When people had been delivered and given peace in the land by the living God, people looked around and saw Saul and said, ooh, he's handsome and strong. We want him to lead us. When David, a shepherd boy who had been given the entire kingdom of Israel, whose enemies were subdued before him, he had beautiful wives, he had beautiful concubines, he had everything he wanted, one day looked out, saw a woman bathing and went, ooh, she looks nice. And he directed his worship there. We also read about the devoted ones who didn't worship other gods. Daniel famously didn't divert his worship when cast into the fire. Esther didn't divert her worship and devotion at the risk of death before the king. Samuel didn't divert his worship and devotion at the risk of death. Joseph didn't divert his worship and devotion at the risk of prison and death. 
And what is it for us? I used to run a, a youth work charity uh, ten, well, longer, 10 years ago. And um, as every good youth work or charity, we're looking for funding. And um, we started this organization, Christian organization, and it was like, we worked with all the churches in certain Coalfield and said, right, we're going to go in the streets and we're going to tell people about Jesus. We're going to meet with the young people. We're going to meet the needs. We're going to do all this stuff. And we did, and it was great. And we went to this uh, charity in Sutton Coalfield, and they wanted to give us a quarter of a million pounds. Now, for a charity that was doing 30,000 turnover a year, that was quite a big amount of money. And we were like, great. And they loved us. They loved what we were doing. They wanted to provide a building for us, all that type of stuff. And we sat in the meeting. We did all the details. And they're like, can we give you more? We're happy with quarter. Do you need more money? We're like, it's great. And then they paused, and they said, just want to check. Is your organization, is it not really evangelistic to do, like, really tell people about Jesus? Is it? And I was like, now, you know what? It's not so much. It's, it's kind of like, you know, we do talk about Jesus, but there's lots for the... D- and I went, oh, look at that money. And my devotion, my worship to God, my this is who we are, went, oh, that's money. And God, in his grace, worked it out that we didn't get that money uh, because I think that would have led us down a really difficult path. Um, I... I um, I had a, a girlfriend once a while ago, <coughs> uh, and uh, three weeks into the relationship, God went, ah, she's nice, but she's not, it's not it, no, just, just trust me. And I was like, ooh, but she's so pretty. She's not, she's a dog. Okay. okay. Um, <laughs> ooh. And that ooh lasted five and a half years. Imagine trying to ignore God for five and a half years. Maybe we have been ignoring God for five and a half years or longer. My worship went somewhere else. God, at various periods of my life, says, I don't want you drinking for long periods of time. And I'm like, oh, that, that drink looks good. A pint of Carling versus the God of the universe. And I'm like, oh, it's ridiculous, isn't it? And what is it? What is it for you? Does someone else's husband or wife look good? Uh, this week, you know, we've, we've been working with people that that's the case for. Does that impressive job look good? Does that money look good? Does that... Channel on Freeview look good? Does that superstar on Instagram look good? Does that other God look good? Does ignoring what God wants from us look good? What is it that may be stealing our devotion from God? And those that are believers, you'll know that your devotion is going elsewhere because there's one crucial gift that God has given to us who believe, um, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit, where God's Spirit himself lives and dwells within us. And that is a real advantage, okay, after Jesus. Pre-Jesus, there was a lot of external guessing, okay? They had to rely on circumstances, other people telling them. They didn't have this gift inside that said, no, 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 no. And um, we read in Acts chapter 1, um, it just says this, some of the men who were in us during the, all the time that God, the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justus and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. The lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. You see, these disciples had lived and breathed with Jesus. They'd walked with him daily for three years. They'd seen his miracles day after day. They'd seen him risen from the dead. 
And yet, when they needed to make a decision, they had to get these stones or sticks, these locks they're called, and you throw them. It's basically like the modern-day version of flipping a coin, yeah? What does God want? Right, it's heads. That's what God wants. But now, we have the Holy Spirit inside us. So that when we're needing to know what to do, the Spirit of God's within us. When you're veering away from God, the voice of God inside goes, no, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And we go, oh, but it looks so good, just like that. Um, and God says, yes, but it'll kill you. And we say, oh, but it feels so right. And God says, yes, it'll destroy your family. And we say, and we have this internal battle now. If you don't think you can hear God's voice, then try and break some of his commandments and see what the voice inside says to you. Or feel how exhausted you are when you're ignoring what God is trying to tell you, okay? We're not looking for big signs in the sky. God himself speaks within us. And ultimately, if our worship veers away and we want to ignore the voice of God, we have no choice but to numb the voice and hide in order to worship other things. And we will start, stop talking to God. We will remove ourselves from friendships, we will remove ourselves from church, we will drift from gathering together, and we will hide ourselves until our devotion and our worship is fully elsewhere. So what do we need to be as followers of the risen Christ? Is solely devoted to him. That our hearts and our worship are fully turned to him. And having received the Spirit of God, allow the Spirit of God to direct and empower us. And you know what? That's all that revival is. And we speak of revival. When a person or group of people decide that they're going to be fully devoted to God and allow his Holy Spirit to lead and guide them. This is the catalyst for change in your life, in your neighbor's life, in the lives of your community. When we as believers get serious about this, the whole world will change. 13, including Paul, 13 average, sinful, mostly uneducated people devoted to God and empowered by the Holy Spirit, changed the entire world. We know about God because of those people, mostly because of Paul, but because of those people. And they weren't anything to look at or be like, they're the best. That's all it takes. There was a lot more than 13 average, sinful, uneducated people in this room. Most of us are quite educated. We're all sinful. Don't try and skip over that one. But we know that we are only empowered by God. And the sad thing is, is the whole reason we have and need revival is because we keep forgetting the relationship. We keep forgetting the devotion and we keep forgetting God. All the way through the Old Testament, all you'll read in general is God loves his people, they worship him. These people move away. God sends reminders, they move back to him. God, people forget God. God reminds them all the way through. And in my life, experience God, I've removed my devotion from God. God reminds me. Revival is needed because we keep forgetting the relationship, forgetting the devotion, and forgetting the God. And it's not about some special touch from God that makes us feel warm and gooey for a short time. It's not to make our, our services more lively. It's not to sell podcasts. It's not to make our church look more sexy. It's none of that stuff. Revival is when a person or people reorientate and focus their worship on the living God and say, God, we will seek after you with our entire lives, no matter what. This refocus, emboldened by the Spirit of God, brings revival and change in your life and in the lives of those around you. We see this in the early church. We see it in the disciples through the ages. And we see that in people today. 
See, we know these people. These are the ones that we look at and go, I wish I had a relationship with God like that person. The ones that when chaos is all around, they seem to know God and be firm in the midst of it. We know these people who are seeking after God. And maybe you are one of them. But the only way we're going to do that is to seek after him. Jeremiah 29, where one says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Matthew 7 says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Not maybe, not mm, will find. But who are we seeking? So Paul, in front of this group of people who worshipped every other God, a multitude of things going on, says this. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord in heaven and earth, does not live in temples, churches made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind breath and everything. He basically says to these people, all these other gods, they are inferior to the one God. That was very offensive to these people. It ritualized through our entire life. There is only one living God. All the other statues, all the other poles, all the other everything else. God made them. He made the material. And it's the same for us today. Is that there are countless gods in this culture, but there's only one God above every other God. And that's an offensive message. And people don't like it. Because how could you say that? There's lots of gods. There's lots of... There's one God. And in fact, in Revelation, there's a beautiful scene um, where it says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And the image of this is, there's this scroll, which, which is, the, which is a, you know, the culmination of the end of time. And they go, who can open this? Only someone who is worthy enough to open this scroll can open it. And they looked in heaven. So that's all the saints, all the, all the biblical people that have gone before us. Looked in heaven. No one was found worthy. So they looked on earth in the living. No one was found worthy. So they looked amongst the dead. No one was found worthy. But they declare one was found worthy, Jesus. Jesus was found worthy. So when we have these countless other gods, there is only one that has ever been found worthy by heaven. And when we know this for ourselves, we won't have to choose to worship God because our hearts will be compelled to. See, worship shouldn't be a choice. And we're not talking about singing. Our life of worship shouldn't need to be a choice. It should be this overwhelming compelledness to live out this devotion. Because when we get to know him, we're blown away by him. The encounters I've had with God, I'm not talking about huge encounters, but whenever I encounter God, there is something that I, there is nothing like you. And he compels me. And we need to convene each day with him and, and, and get to know him. And as we get to know him, our worship grows. And as our worship grows, people in our lives see that. And they go, what's so different about you? 
Why are you different? What's happening in your life? What's, what's this internal thing? And people will want to know this God. The church, we the people of God, are the greatest witness in the entire world. And our very lives should be a reminder of God. If our lives are not reminding people of God, then there's probably some questions that we ask of ourselves. Our lives should look so different, not just in the things that we do, but in who we are. People should look at you and go, oh, you're one of them believers. They might say in a nice way, you're one of those believers. But there should be something about us that is distinct because a living God indwells us. And that should impact our entire life. And so coming towards the end. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Saying this, the God of heaven is sovereign. Every nation, every boundary in the history of time, God has established, God has pulled down, God has pulled back up again. He's sovereign over all. There is nothing that is outside of his power and control. It's in his plans and purposes. And part of his reason for doing that is that we might seek after him. We might be so overwhelmed by God that we would want to seek after him. Or it suggests even kind of feel our way towards him. I don't know whether if you've got children or just your lights have gone out sometime and they're asleep and you need to find someone in their bedroom, but you can't turn the light on because that's a bad thing to do when you spend an hour getting them to sleep. And you're just groping around on the floor and you're trying to Find this thing in the dark. And this verse says, if you're not going to seek him, just at least start to grope around in the dark a little bit. Just that's enough just to, just to start touching out and feeling. But God has set this up, whole of this earth, your life, the people around you, so that we might find out about him. There's no other purpose in life. There's no ultimate goal for, uh, that works anywhere else. It's, you know, we, know, we know over history it's not about money and success and power. and All this is set up so we just know God. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. If anything else you think replaces God, it doesn't. If your God is material, it will never replace God. If your God is a person, God himself sustains that person. They only exist because of him. If your God is anything created whatsoever, then the God of heaven and earth was the one who created him. And so finally this, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul summarizes, now this is the God of heaven. Now the God of heaven has been revealed. The time of ignorance is over so that we might seek him. And maybe that rings true for some of us today. That Paul saying, the ignorance is over. The time of not seeking God is over. 
especially if you've given your life to him, the not seeking of God, that time of doing our life without him, doing our life with not including him in it, doing our life with not looking at his decisions and what he wants us to do is over. We can no longer get on not getting to know him daily. We can no longer go on just being Sunday seekers and weekday wanderers. We can no longer have multiple gods. We can no longer have shared worship. And there will be a day where we stand before him. It is quite clear with that. And we'll give account, regardless of whether we're saved or not, we'll give account, we'll have a conversation with God. And it'll be the most profoundly beautiful, wonderful, petrifying thing, I think, in our entire life. It would be wonderful because we would be with God. But that moment where he looks at you and, and you're like, God, I know, I know. And he's like, and you're like, I know, God. And we're like, oh God, I could, have, I could have lived for you. I knew it, I wanted to. But, but I just kept, I just kept, and he's like, it's okay. See, God won't smack us around and go, oh, I'm going to judge you for that. We ourselves will go, God, I know. Send me back. Send me do it again. Read that in the Bible. Send me back. There's a, there's a beautiful picture as well in Revelation where the saints have crowns on their heads and God gives them a crown. And they're like, no, no, no. And they cast their crowns before him and say, God, this is nothing. You are the one who's worthy. And we need to grab that sense again where God is the one that is worthy. Now is the time to seek God. When it's over, it's over. Okay, it's not a shocker to any of us. We live and we die. The time for seeking God is now. He has created this entire world so that we might be able to seek him and know him. The time now is to seek God, to give single-minded worship, to allow the Holy Spirit to move us, and then you will know God. You will follow in his purposes, and you will experience a life full of him. Final verses, just to finish with, with reading these. This is from the book of Romans. This is another letter that Paul wrote, but it really sums up what we've just talked about. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. That means devoted life. Our devoted life to God is our true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing will.